from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. In different projects, it started to sound um, uh, repetitive. And it gets hyper whitewashed and hyper um, coastal. So we offer um, a different perspective when you have that access to the full body and in all its glory. I'm Sarah Fenske. Forty years ago, the first diagnoses of HIV-AIDS were made in the U.S. More than 700,000 Americans have since died from AIDS-related illness, and more than 1.2 million currently live with the disease. For the past three decades, the World Health Organization has designated December 1st as World AIDS Day. And for 32 years, the arts community has marked the anniversary with a day without art. This year, for this 40th anniversary, the Contemporary Art Museum St. Louis will host Day Without Art, Enduring Care. That includes a panel discussion with community care leaders discussing that first AIDS diagnosis in 1981, St. Louis's history of the disease, and what it's like living with HIV-AIDS in this ongoing pandemic. It also includes a resource fair and a screening of video shorts. The national organization Visual Aids commissions the video series each year to bring attention to the disease. And joining us now to share some perspective on today's events is Crystal Ellis. She's an advisor to the Day Without Art Enduring Care Program. She's also a sexual health educator and the owner of Crystallized Sexuality LLC, which offers consulting in sex education. Crystal Ellis, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. And we're also joined today by Charles Ryan Long. He's a local artist with work featured in the Visual AIDS Project and also an activist himself living with HIV. Charles Ryan Long, welcome. Hello. So, Crystal, let's start with you. We often talk about public health when we're in medical settings. Does it feel unusual to get to do a program like this at an art museum? Actually not. Um since this summer, um, I've actually collaborated with The Luminary, um, which is another art uh, gallery space here in St. Louis, um, to host um, a project and um, a workshop, actually, on uh, queering self-pleasure. So this is a new venture for me, but I'm not necessarily used to um, having accessibility to art spaces to showcase the vastness of um, sexuality, queerness, and um, different communities that deserve our attention. So do you think bringing these kind of conversations to art spaces, whether that's a, a gallery or an art museum, helps to destigmatize these topics? Absolutely. The museum space offers a um, place for folks, photographers, artists, sculptures um, that showcase nudity, that showcase other um, forms of uh, bodies that we don't really get the opportunity to learn in a textbook or in an education setting. So we offer um, a different perspective when you have that access to the full body and in all its glory. Hmm. And Charles, the arts community was hard hard-hit by HIV-AIDS. Does that also make this a, a, an appropriate setting for this kind of conversation? Yeah, I think, you know, the the point of World AIDS Day, World AIDS Day, and, or at least uh, is a point of remembrance, right? And it's important to remember the lives that 
we lost and their works are still with us, but there are people who functioned and made those works and continued. We continue to have losses in the community. I mean, I think one of the other things that visual aid stresses and that is important about today's event is that AIDS isn't over. Um, and it's something that's currently happening um, for communities here in St. Louis, but across the country and across the world. Mm-hmm. I think that's important. We're not just talking about something that happened 40 years ago, and it's not ongoing today. In addition to that, Charles, you really make a point of saying this didn't begin 40 years ago, that it is actually inaccurate to say that, even though that first diagnosis, that is the anniversary that we're looking at today, and that is what happened here. The history of HIV AIDS in this country goes back much longer, as well as in St. Louis. How so? Yeah, we. I mean, we now know uh, that uh, a, a man named Robert Rayford um, died uh, years before that official diagnosis and that announcement in the New York Times that many folks refer to as the 40th anniversary. Um, but we know that he died um, due to AIDS-related complications, right? And so that would actually make him the first case um, here in the United States. And that's important because I think when we look back historically, we looked at groups like Act Up and movies and the historicization of the disease and the fight that went um, to win rights around it. And it gets hyper whitewashed and hyper um, coastal. Um, and actually, when actuality, it was very black, it was very brown, it was, and it was right here in the Midwest. And I don't think folks, and you know, even more uh, accurately to say in St. Louis, right? And if the amount of attention that has gone to, say, coastal communities or those narratives went into this same narrative, maybe communities here in St. Louis would have better outcomes and communities in other rural places and other place, places around the world. Mm. So this case of Robert Rayford, um, Lois Connolly, who's been a guest on this show just earlier this week, actually, uh, talking about Josephine Baker, she'll take part in tonight's program at the Contemporary Art Museum. She's the founder and president of the Griot Museum of Black History, and she's host of the Impact HIV AIDS Initiative. She told our producer a little bit more about Robert Rayford. And, you know, this was a 15-year-old kid back in 1966 when he started not feeling well. And it wasn't until an autopsy on him consented to by his mother that the physician discovered small purplish lesions on his left thigh and several similar growths in the soft tissue inside his body. Um, And at first, they didn't understand that this was even related to HIV AIDS. And it wasn't until the late 80s when there was another autopsy performed on him that people understood what was really going on here. So this is a story that was um, sort of misunderstood for years. Charles, that fits into that, what you're talking about, about just things that have been swept under the rug. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, even more relevantly in this week's news, we hear about this variant and that was discovered in, in Africa, but it was actually discovered there and it's in multiple places. But w- the reaction we've seen has been a stigmatization of the continent and South Africa and a banning of folks from entering this country that are, the variant actually hasn't even been discovered in. And it's this way that we, uh, the combination of misinformation and action, when they take hold in that way, that actual damage happens and communities that require care don't get the care that they need. So, Crystal, this is a topic that you've thought about a lot. Um, You became a sexual health educator after pursuing a master's in public health at Wash U, and you've said it's only later that you learned about how some really good intentions when it comes to interventions on the public health front miss the mark. Uh, What do people do wrong, and, and how can we avoid that? 
Yeah, I think, first of all, we don't know about our communities. Um, Washington University is a great university and, and attracts folks internationally across the country. I'm from Los Angeles and moved here for the school. Um, and uh, while it does great work in the community, a lot of times us, the students, are naive to think that we can walk into Pagedale or to Baden and um, just pass along some condoms or pass along some information and change this person's life. This imaginary person who is struggling or um, not making money or whatever. And so um, it started to, um, <clears throat> in different projects, it started to sound um, uh, repetitive. Like we just go here, we make a change, and then we leave. However, we know in different communities, and I, I was a part of a community back in Los Angeles where you don't knock on people's doors and mm -hmm. and uh, solicit them, especially for sexual health information. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> right. So um, we have to understand the context in which we live in, um, and also know more about the communities we serve by actually being a part of those communities. And it's only in two years that we get a master's program or, or extended uh, degree program that you can learn something, but a lot of folks just leave. You know, they got their degree and now they're on to another degree or to another state. Um, and that impact doesn't last. It's it's uh, it's an initial um, interest, but then it fades or a lot of people, a lot of turnover in um, aid service organizations and the, the relationships that we build with our clients um, uh, disintegrate once we leave and go to another organization. So, Crystal, how do we overcome that? I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, but it seems like the solutions uh, become really hard. Right. Um, I think how I've managed to um, reframe um, the topics of HIV, AIDS, STIs um, has been through um, creative outlets. Um, I, I follow and am a part of a um, sex education network and community of folks who are doing the hard work and um, doing everything possible to avoid getting banned on Instagram, to avoid getting banned on TikTok, um, just to share this important sexual health information. Um, and I think we need to combine that. Um, it, it's not just one platform that's going to take us from, uh, you know, being one of the top uh, cities of uh, chlamydia and gonorrhea rates, but um, it's going to take a group effort. So the folks in um, the the folks that are on the front lines doing community work, um, paired with. Uh, personalities, social media personalities, the, uh, the um, communities at large um, to sort of uh, tackle it at both ends. Charles, hearing Crystal talk about that, it actually feels like the perfect transition to the program that's happening at the Contemporary Art Museum tonight, because the talk there is really focused on community care and mutual aid. Uh, does that connect to what Crystal is talking about here, about being sort of deeply embedded in the community, not just jetting in? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, uh, I'm a part of a group called What Would an HIV Doula Do? Doula Do? And that's actually what 
has brought me into the CAM situation as well as my work with visual aids. And the the doulas are a community of care, and we doula folks not only in their diagnosis around HIV, but we think of uh, HIV as being something that no one you don't get HIV alone, so no one should have to deal with it alone. And I think what we'll see, what folks will see in the films that are premiering tonight, is that these situations of care, communities of care from across the globe. There are films from Puerto Rico and Mexico and uh, Ireland, or the UK, I should say, all featured this evening. And they all really center around this idea of care and how care can mobilize much more uh, in an effort. Uh, You know, we look at AIDS and, you know, many of the early interventions in medications were brought on because of community pressure. Um, We look at the case of drug users and folks who, uh, the idea of harm reduction, which was a basically a community model of caring for folks. And we see this lesson over and over again. And we've also seen it in the last couple of years as we've dealt with the pandemic, um, when the idea of mutual aid and folks stepping in where government systems were lacking and providing services for each other and really caring for each other. And so I think that uh, all of these themes will be expressed tonight in the films, and it's it's essential to the program. Charles, it's interesting to hear you talk about an HIV doula. I feel like a lot of us are familiar with doulas in the childbirth space, that they kind of are a woman's support and, and coach as they go through that process. Is this a, a concept that is is now being implemented for people who are dealing with an HIV diagnosis as well? Um, I think uh, within the collective, it's a collective of thinkers, artists, um, professors, folks who all uh, deal with uh, HIV and AIDS in their work at at large and and various from various viewpoints. And so I think we think of a doula as a person who helps through transition. Mm -hmm. And transition is any moment in our lives, whether you can doula someone in death or you can doula someone in birth. But there are also moments in our life that we transition from being housed to unhoused or sober to, uh, you know, uh, these type of spaces where care and holding a person can actually mean their survival. Uh, it means their, or their passing with intent, uh, you know, and, and those type of things. And it's a way to hold transitional space. And so it's a, it's a broadening of that concept of a birth doula. We're talking today to Charles Ryan Long. He's a local artist, um, also an activist living with HIV. We're also talking to Crystal Ellis, um, who um, is the owner of Crystallized Sexuality LLC, which deals with sexual health and and sex education. And they are both part of a program happening today at the Contemporary Art Museum uh, St. Louis. It's called Day Without art, enduring care, and deals with the 40th anniversary of the first official diagnosis of HIV in this country. Crystal, we've been talking about how community and community care and mutual aid, these are a big part of what's being talked about tonight. Have you seen them make an impact on people's lives? Yes, in the shortest of sense. Um, I think without... um, us being able to directly go into people's homes, and I'm saying like consensually go into people's sure. homes. Um, and um, I uh, worked at an aid service organization where I um, did health insurance enrollments. And a lot of times we weren't even thinking about, or uh, the, the larger conversation isn't even thinking about how people get their medication. Um, and um, I was able to help folks at least get health insurance so that they could then afford um, their HIV medications on a, um, a, a daily basis. And um, 
I, I think that, too, is a part of community care and something that um, needs to be funded more um, as we talk about Medicaid expansion in Missouri. Um, we, we absolutely need these uh, social services to do their part um, so that us as a community are able to thrive and, lives our, and live our lives healthily. So, Charles, taking stock of where we are today, 40 years since this was publicly known that HIV-AIDS was here in this country, um, people are now living uh, much longer with this disease and, and having very um, active and, and productive lives in ways that might have seemed impossible 40 years ago. But you feel like not everything has gotten better. How so? Um, I think uh, just to the point that we were just talking about, you know, you can't look at a person's life solely if they have access to health care. Um, like that is one aspect. Yes, we should all have access to health care. But if you are unhoused or unemployed, uh, you have no place to put those medications that uh, your doctor is prescribing for you. Um, you have no way of making the other parts of your life or eating the nutritious foods that you need. We still haven't changed the overall conditions for those who are the most vulnerable for HIV. In terms of their access to housing and work and employment and education, and until those things are uh, set up as a net and a way for folks to succeed, a, a holistic or comprehensive, if you will, look at folks' life until we take an intersectional viewpoint of how we deal with folks, and in that space, we actually will continue to see folks falling through the cracks and remaining vulnerable to not only HIV, but to many other things that um, uh, can plague a person's life. Crystal, what would you like to see change if we looked at where we want to be 40 years from now um, when it comes to all this? What needs to change in Missouri to get there? Mm. That's a great question. <laughs> um, it's a big question. <laughs> right. I think... Honestly, I want a lot of our attention to focus on um, folks outside of the MSM community when we talk about folks living with HIV. And, and sorry, um, Crystal, MSM, what is MSM? Right. Um, men who have sex with men um, is usually a blanket uh, identifier um, for folks that may not necessarily identify with gay or um, bisexual sexual orientation. Um but a lot of the government grants and funding that goes towards HIV research and um, support sort of stops at uh, white men who have sex with men. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really hard, actually, to get grant, uh, grant funding and, and other monies actually put and invested towards people who live in rural communities, um, people who are um, black or indigenous um, uh, tribal lands, not having access to um, support. And um, it's, it, it's disheartening as a black woman to um, sort of always have to go back to, okay, well, we actually do need to focus on this target population. And um, while we can expand the conversations to include black women and, and other folks, um, we don't have the funding to then include black women and other people.
Hmm. So it always, it seems like all of these issues always come back to funding, and that's such an important thing. Yeah, I mean, it's about the money, you know. Um, Even in HIV programs, there's uh, Medicaid assistance programs for folks who make under, like, sometimes $50,000 a year. Um, However, that's a catch-22, because if I'm uh, a person living with HIV and and have a successful career, now I have to jump off of this uh, assistance program to pay for for medications out of pocket or other things that can run into the thousands of dollars a month, um, depending on the type of medication that you are prescribed. And that's not affordable for anybody. Um, So a lot of the, uh, or uh, some of the films that we'll see tonight um, focus on um, expanding access and stop hoarding medications in other countries. Um, While the U.S. doesn't have necessarily a, a, well, we hoard the medications, but we don't have a, um, a limit or um, um, where we have enough medication, but in other countries, they are um, being denied care um, whole uh, altogether um, and are fighting just to have their 30-day or 60-day pill regimen to be fulfilled. Crystal Ellis, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And Charles Ryan Long, thank you. Have a great day. This episode was produced by Laura Hamden with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.